I can't imagine what life would be like if that happened. Have you ever thought that? As you've thought ahead to something which might one day happen and you wonder how you would be able to cope if it did. Well, that sense of apprehension is something that the disciples would have felt at the beginning of the book of Acts. Because in the opening verses of this book, the event that they have surely dreaded happens. Jesus ascends up into heaven. It would have been an amazing thing to see. And yet now they are left without him. And it's not hard to imagine the sense of apprehension and uncertainty that they would have felt. Right up to almost the closing verses of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Jesus had been physically present on earth with his disciples. But now in the book of Acts, things are going to be different. Jesus' followers are now being called to live for him And not only to live for him, but to take his message to the ends of the earth without Jesus being physically present with them. So what we have in the book of Acts is a community of people who will have to learn to live for Jesus when Jesus is no longer present with them. And I trust that we can immediately see the relevance of that this morning. Because that's us, isn't it? As the church, we are a community of people who are called to live for Jesus without Jesus being physically present. And not only that, but but we have to learn to to live for Jesus with persecution, uh, perhaps just around the corner. Uh, That's certainly the position in, in the book of Acts, as we'll see next week. And not only persecution from the outside, but, but, but the ever-present danger of, of division on the inside and pressures on the inside as well. And we too face the same things. A growing threat of persecution on the outside and always the, the potential for, for division on the inside or, or, or unrest or, or things that need sorted out. Because life... Uh, Life is is messy. Life together is messy. Uh, How are we going to navigate all these things? Like God's people in the book of Acts, as Bible-believing Christians, we are a small minority in our nation. We are a marginal community, either ignored or despised. And yet this marginalized group in the book of Acts grew In the face of mockery, in the face of persecution, they took the gospel to their neighbours and they took it to the nations and many, many people were converted. Why did that happen? Was it because there was anything special about them? No, it was because Jesus was present with them by his spirit, even though physically he was no longer on earth. Luke uh, begins here, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Uh, That word began is huge because what does it imply? 
Well, it implies that Jesus only began his work when he was on earth. But now in heaven, he continues to work. Jesus' work in the world isn't over. The gospel accounts were only the beginning of Jesus doing and teaching. He's still doing and teaching in the book of Acts. And he's still doing and teaching today as well. He's teaching us right now. So in other words, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're about what Jesus began to do and teach. But the book of Acts is about what he continues to do and teach. The only difference is that in Acts he's no longer physically present. Yet he is still at work by the power of his Holy Spirit. And if we didn't believe that, we might as well go home. All other religions regard their founder as having completed his work during his lifetime. But Christianity is different because it teaches that Jesus is still at work today. It teaches, as we saw last week, that apart from him, we can do nothing. The book of Acts is like part two of Luke's gospel. But it would be a mistake to see Luke's gospel as being about Jesus. But then Acts being about what what Jesus' followers got up to once he was no longer around. Because both books are about the work of the Lord Jesus from beginning to end. In fact, over the centuries, people have, I think, rightly questioned whether the Acts of the Apostles is really the best title for the book. Uh, Remember that the the titles of of the biblical books aren't inspired. Uh, Why do people have problems with the title, the Acts of the Apostles? Well, for a start, the Apostles, uh, who are are listed later on in chapter 1, most of them aren't actually mentioned again in the whole book. The focus is mainly on two apostles, Peter and Paul. So the book is, is more like some acts of some apostles. Then uh, as well as that, the book is made up of speeches and sermons. Someone has said for a book called Acts, much of it is teaching. Uh, and so thinking of this as the acts of the apostles can mask the fact that the apostles were preachers first and foremost. And that the miracles they did were simply there to back up their message. Uh, And even more fundamentally than that, calling the book the Acts of the Apostles, it masks the fact that that this book is really the Acts of the risen Jesus. Uh, As Peter says in chapter 9 to a paralyzed man called Aeneas, Uh, which we'll we'll come to in a few weeks, God willing. Uh, Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Not Aeneas, Jesus is in heaven, but but we're going to heal you. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you because he is still working uh, and teaching in the book of Acts. Uh, So if we weren't going to call it the Acts of the Apostles, what what would we call it? Some have suggested a better title would be the Acts of the Risen Jesus by His Spirit through the Church. Uh, That's a bit more of a mouthful, uh, but it's maybe a bit more accurate. Uh, The Acts of the Risen Jesus 
by his spirit through the church. But whatever you want to call it, the point is that Jesus is still at work. He is alive and in sovereign control of the entire universe for the sake of his church. That's true in the book of Acts and that's true today. If Jesus wasn't at work, if it all depended on us, what hope could we have of reaching the community around us? But because Jesus is still at work through us by his spirit, that changes everything. We might think that once Jesus went back up to heaven that God's plan for the world would be put on pause. But actually the opposite happens God's great plan moves up a gear as the Spirit comes and the good news goes out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. And what explains the the ability of the early Christians to be able to to do that? Well, it's only the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. And while staying with them, he, that is Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What is that promise they were to wait for? He tells them in the next verse, it's the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, they might as well stay at home. There's no point trying to reach Jerusalem with the gospel, never mind leaving Jerusalem. But when the Holy Spirit comes, everything will change. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Someone recently posed the question, how did the early church function without the expertise we have today? Uh, Expertise in, in inverted commas. No social media, no marketing techniques, no slick presentations. How, how did they function? Uh, well, here's uh, the answer that was given. They had God's word and the Holy Spirit and that was sufficient. And they turned the world upside down. They had God's word and God's spirit and that was enough to turn the world upside down. And we have exactly the same as what they had. A true, some of the the events recorded in the book of Acts are are one-off events. We're, We're not to look for them to be repeated. But in terms of resources, we have exactly what they had. And so the book of Acts is relevant for us today because we are in the same position as Jesus' followers were here. As this book starts, small, marginalised and without Jesus physically present. And yet we have exactly what they had as well. We have the Holy Spirit and we have God's word. That's all they needed to turn the world upside down. So do you feel your dependence on the Holy Spirit? Do we feel it as a church? To revisit an illustration from last week, the the work of the church consists of both the trellis and the vine. And it's scarily possible to build the trellis without the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's possible for lots of church-related activity to be going on. And yet the work of watering, fertilising and growing the vine can be done only by the power of God's Spirit. 
And so the book of Acts, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once described it, is a tonic for the church. It's a tonic. It gives us a boost. It stirs us into action. It rouses us from slumber. It moves us from maintenance mode to mission mode because it reminds us that Jesus is still at work. And it not only reminds us what our mission is, but it reminds us that we can look for the help of the same Holy Spirit as we seek to bring the gospel to our neighbours and to the nations. So hopefully that, that sets the scene for our return to the book of Acts. That's the situation in which they were living. Uh, that's the, the challenges that they faced and is very similar to the situation we're living in today. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to do a quick overview of these first two chapters of the book to remind ourselves of some of the key events. And don't miss verse 14 of chapter 1 and what we see the believers doing here. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Prayer is a big theme in Luke's gospel. Prayer, praying or pray are mentioned 28 times in 24 chapters in Luke. And here in Acts, uh, it's similar, uh, 30 times in 28 chapters If we really do believe in our dependence on the Holy Spirit as they did, we will be people of prayer as they were. Our churches will be marked by prayer. Maybe we wonder why we don't see some of the the things they saw in the book of Acts. Well, if we don't, could it be because James 4 verse 2 applies to us? You do not have because you do not ask. And yet to encourage you in prayer this morning, just under a year ago after we'd come back to worship following the second lockdown, pretty much everyone was back at worship, but it felt like we could do with a bit of a boost. Um, We began to pray as a church that God would give us two new faces at worship by the end of the year. Uh, I look back, that was one of the things that I told Karis in August when she got in touch asking about coming over, that that's what we've been praying for. So we asked for two new faces uh, and by the end of the year we've been given five. Hopefully that's an encouragement uh, to those of you who are worshipping with us now uh, and you weren't a year ago. Your presence here is an answer to prayer. And maybe long before coming to church even crossed your mind. And hopefully that's an encouragement to, to all of us to keep on praying. That in 2022 we'd see more new faces. That we'd see conversions. That we'd see people joining the church. That to go back to last week's sermon we'd see people being connected to the vine and bearing fruit. And that when we experience times of suffering, that we would see it as coming from the fatherly hand of God. uh, That he is pruning us in order to make us more fruitful. Uh, So that's just by way of comment on verse 14 here. It's just one of many verses about prayer spread throughout this book. Uh, The Acts of the Apostles, uh, and one of the the big and most frequent Acts of the Apostles was the act of prayer. uh, An act of dependence on God and on his Holy Spirit. 
Then in the rest of chapter 1, to summarize it briefly, the disciples deal with the elephant in the room, which is the whole question of Judas. How could one of Jesus' own hand-picked disciples betray him? And yet, as Peter points out, Judas' betrayal of Jesus had been prophesied in the book of Psalms. And in fact, another psalm prophesied that someone else would take his place. So rather than God's plan going wrong, this had been part of the plan the whole time. One of the most striking things about the New Testament is how quick the Christians were to turn to the Psalms and to quote them as being all about the Lord Jesus and his mission. And so in light of of that, in light of what had been prophesied, they put forward two candidates who meet the criteria to be the to be apostles who had been with them from the beginning, who had seen the Lord. Uh, they pray again, this whole process is marked by prayer, uh, and they choose Matthias. It is sometimes said that the apostles actually jumped the gun here and that they should have waited until Paul was converted and chosen him. But I don't see any evidence of that in scripture. It's true that we don't hear of Matthias again, but we don't hear of most of the rest of the apostles either. What's important here is the symbolism. Just as there have been 12 tribes in the Old Testament, now the New Testament church must start out with 12 apostles. The number is less important later on. When James is killed in chapter 12, he isn't replaced. But here at the beginning of the New Testament church, the symbolism is what's important. And so just as had been prophesied a thousand years before, a replacement for Judas is appointed. And with that, the stage is set for the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, uh, the promise arrives that the Holy Spirit comes down and the disciples uh, find themselves able to speak in real human languages that they'd never learnt before. Maybe you've heard Christians in other churches talking about speaking in tongues uh, and you wonder what that's all about. And there is a view that it's possible and even necessary for Christians today to speak in heavenly languages Uh, That if you've experienced the the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you you will be able to speak in in heavenly languages that that no one on earth uh, has ever spoken, but but perhaps someone is able to interpret. But actually, tongue speaking in the Bible was speaking in real human languages. The word tongues just means languages. It's the same word. Uh, That's really clear here in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the apostles are, are able to speak in languages that they'd never learned. And there's no reason to think that the tongues mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament are any different from that. That's maybe something we'll come back to and look in more detail when we get to chapter 10, which is sometimes called the Gentile Pentecost. But I don't want to spend too much time on that today, particularly because if we come away from Acts 2 just talking about tongue speaking, then we've missed the point. Because the big point of what's going on here in Acts chapter 2 is that it's the Tower of Babel in reverse. It's the Tower of Babel in reverse. The, The curse of Babel is turned into blessing. 
This isn't the first place in the Bible where we read of a list of nations followed by languages being changed. In Genesis 10, uh, we have what's called the Table of Nations, a list of all the people on earth at the time. And right after that list of nations comes the Tower of Babel, when men try and stay in one place and make a name for themselves rather than spread out as God had commanded them. At the Tower of Babel, we read that God comes down to see their puny little tower and confuses their speech. And so the fact that there are all these different languages in the world today is because of man's sin. But here in Acts 2, we read of God coming down again. But this time, he doesn't come down in judgment, but in grace. And for a brief time, he reverses part of that curse. The multiple languages still exist, but for a brief moment, they can all understand each other. It's a picture of what God will one day completely do. All the effects of the curse in our lives will be undone because of what Jesus did on the cross. All the effects of the curse which you encountered in this last week will be gone. Sickness will be gone. Family tensions will be gone. Worries about work will be gone. Loneliness will be gone. Apprehension about the future will be gone. All the effects of the curse will one day be gone because Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So the tongue speaking here is a symbol of Babel being reversed. And it's also a foretaste of the fact that now the Spirit has been poured out. The next step is that the gospel is to go to the nations. All the nations are here, they they hear God's word and they will take uh, that message back to their homelands. Uh, And as the Spirit is poured out here and the believers speak in these other languages, some are amazed and perplexed but others mock. Always, always two responses to the preaching of the gospel. But Peter takes their mockery as the starting point for a sermon that takes up most of the rest of the chapter. The Bible that he has in his hand, if he had one in his hand, is the Old Testament. He preaches from the book of Joel, from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And as Peter preaches, the Spirit is at work. And when he tells the crowd that they had crucified the one who God had made both Lord and Christ, they're cut to the heart and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? I wonder, have you ever reached that point where you've been cut to the heart? Not simply because you're full of regret at how your sin has messed up your life. Not even that you've been cut to the heart simply because of what your sin has done to other people. But you've been cut to the heart because you've seen your sin for what it really is, as against God. No matter how how wild your life may have been or how respectable your life might have been, your sin was rebellion against God himself. And if that's where you're at at the moment, if you are feeling this, will be encouraged because that conviction of sin comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
If these words just bounce off you, well, that's more reason to be worried. But, but if you feel that conviction, uh, take heart. When they cry out, what shall we do? Peter points them to the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And that's where you must go as well. And what a moment this is for those who listen to him. Verse 41, so those who, were rece- those who received his word were baptised and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's all that anyone has to do if you're under conviction of sin this morning. All you have to do is receive the words of the apostles as they're recorded here in front of us. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have reached that point this morning, what a joy that is. The angels in heaven are rejoicing at the change that has taken place in your life. And if you have done that, well, the next step is to be baptised if you haven't already been as a child and to be added to the number, to join the church, to publicly profess that you belong to Jesus. And just as we begin to draw things to a close this morning... It's very interesting that Acts chapter 2 doesn't end with the number of converts. It tells us that, but it doesn't end there because that's what mass evangelism often does today. You'll read a report that says, well, well, evangelist X preached at such and such a venue uh, to 10,000 people uh, and X number of people were converted. But that's where it stops. You don't know how many of them woke up the next day as if nothing had happened? Yes, they may have made a decision for Jesus, but is their life any different afterwards? What does their life look like six months later? And so Acts chapter 2 doesn't just tell us that 3,000 people made decisions for Jesus, but it tells us what their lives looked like afterwards. And what did their lives look like? Well, verse 42 is a great summary. Uh, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We talked last week about uh, trellis work and vine work. Uh, vine work being the church's main task, trellis work being the logistics and administration and structure which is necessary. Uh, uh, parts of it even God appointed, uh, and yet often it can take over. But here God's people are devoted to the word, they're devoted to worship, and they're devoted to fellowship. Vine work is front and centre. This is often where we see the difference between someone who's a genuine believer and someone who's just made a decision for Christ or went through some experience where they felt they were born again. And again, to come back to last week, this is why as elders, our big concern is that every one of you will be devoted to the word, devoted to worship and devoted to fellowship. They're not added extras. They're the bread and butter of the Christian life. This is what authentic Christianity looks like. This is what the church that Jesus builds is about. Perhaps you know someone who says to you, I'd love to grow in my Christian life. And perhaps they even wonder why they're not growing spiritually. But if they're not devoted to the word, devoted to worship and devoted to fellowship, then it's no surprise that they're not growing. And there's no point in them wishing that they grew when they're not devoted to the things that the early Christians were. 
And if you have recently been converted this morning, will take as your example, not necessarily those that you see around you at times who, who might be, be, be part, of the, part of the church, uh, but, but uh, not particularly involved in what's going on, but take as your example uh, these early Christians here devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Perhaps... People today wonder why their churches are declining and there are many reasons for that. God is sovereign. But if by and large those churches aren't devoted to the word, to worship and to fellowship, well it isn't much of a surprise why the Lord isn't adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. As he does here in the last verse. And really, each of these aspects of the church in these verses could be summed up in terms of relationships. The early Christians related to the apostles and their teaching in submission. They related to God in worship. They related to each other in love. And they related to the world in outreach. So the church that Jesus builds is a church of transformed relationships. And it's only possible because, first of all, we have a relationship with him. And if you do have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, do you not long to be part of a church like the one pictured here? Because this is the church that Jesus builds. And in his grace, this is the type of church that he invites us to be part of building. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm 67. Psalm 67, the C version on page 140. Psalm 67, C, page 140. Psalm 67, C, page 140. This is a psalm which speaks of God's blessing on us in order that we might take the gospel to the nations. It was something that the Old Testament looked forward to, but which from the day of Pentecost onwards began to be realised and is being realised in our day. And it is only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit and because Jesus is still at work through him. Taking the gospel to our neighbours and to the nations is ultimately the acts of the risen Jesus by his spirit through the church. And that is something which every one of us can have the tremendous privilege of being involved in. We don't need a big budget. We don't need a lot of people. All we need is God's word and God's spirit. And that's exactly what we have. Psalm 67c, let's stand and praise God.